time. Hello, and welcome to Let's Farm and Ice. Wait, no, let me do that. Okay. Do that. It's, my, it's my fucking All right, go ahead. It doesn't matter. I wanted to do something cool anyway. Welcome to la, 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 Let's Farm and Ice, a proud member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. I'm Cal Vandergrift. I'm not using this <laughs> audio. Come on, do it. I'm Shane Garretson, unfortunately. <laughs> and I'm Justin Frederick. And today, we're talking about the medical mysteries behind King George III. Regrettably, all that and more on Let's Farm and Ice. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The views and opinions expressed within are those of the authors and speakers themselves and do not necessarily represent any affiliated institution or third party. I take you back to the late 18th century England. Ah, remember this one? King George III is the noble king, and his reputation precedes him. He's described as a kind person who genuinely enjoyed listening to the lives of those whom he'd ruled. Unlike the myths portrayed today in the United States schools, King George III was seen as a great parliamentary leader, despite losing the Revolutionary War to the Americans. However, Something isn't quite right with George. He often complains of abdominal pain and GI upset. He also has noticeable rashes and scars all over his body. His arms and legs would tend to fall asleep for days at a time. He would never sleep and would often be confused and suffer hallucinations. He slowly began to lose his lucidity and developed episodes of mania not unlike the manic episodes associated with bipolar disorder. During the worst episodes, he, a happily married man with 15 children, would chase young ladies around the court assaulting royal servants who were tasked to stop him, and would be babbling incoherently during the entirety of the episode. Just from this information alone, it would have been quite easy to speculate that the king had developed some sort of schizophrenia, had it not been for one key condition. During specifically his worst episodes of mania, the king would often urinate colors that baffled royal physicians. A spectrum of colors ranging from dark red to bright Carolina blue would be found in his piss pots. Could we mention the stool this time? Oh, the stool, the stool. My dear peeps, the persistent excellence of the stool has been one of this disease's most tedious features. When will you get it into your head that one can produce a copious, regular, and exquisitely turned evacuation every day of the week and still be a stranger to reason? And of course, the royal doctors, rather than using traditional medications, would often use their own concoctions so they would be known as the doctor that saved King George. With any patient, I undertake a physical examination only as a last resort. It's an intolerable intrusion on a gentleman's privacy. With his majesty, it's unthinkable. Shut stop, the king, the king! A baker, yes, a ninny, what, what? Well, you can tell him I'm much better. I had a pretty smart bilious attack. Very smart indeed. But it has passed. Uh, sir, would it be possible to take His Majesty's pulse? Would it be possible to take Your Majesty's pulse, sir? Yes, go on, do it, do it, do it. Now, don't faff, sir. Hold it, man, don't fondle it. Now, were you responsible for the Senna, Baker? What, what? I prescribed it for Your Majesty, yes, sir. Then you are a fool, Baker, what, what? It's only a mild purgative, sir. Mild, sir? Mild? Fourteen motions and you call it mild? I could have manured the whole parish. Several instances of this mania were treated with arsenic, 
Arsenic has been documented back as far as the 4th century BC, when Aristotle himself referred to the chemical as a sandarach, which loosely translates to red lead. It wouldn't be until 1250 AD when German alchemist Albertus Magnus isolated the element. The word arsenic comes from the Greek word arsenikos, meaning masculine, or more specifically, potent. Arsenic has been used for hundreds of years homeopathically for treatment of food poisoning, insomnia, anxiety, depression, and OCD. However, as we know from our homeopathy episode, the vast majority of treatments are utter rubbish. Arsenic today is more commonly known as a poison, and high levels in the drinking waters of South America and Central Asia have resulted in cancer and other serious side effects for hundreds of years and thousands of people. It is speculated that the arsenic therapies he received were very toxic to his liver and may have actually worsened his condition. King George's condition would never be cured, and his last years serving in the 1810s were full of dementia-ridden episodes and eventual onset blindness in addition to his condition. We always talk about the madness of King George, but realistically, I think more light should be shined on the sadness of King George. <laughs> that was really bad. That was good. William Thackeray, a famous author, once wrote in regard to the last years of King George's life, all the world knows the story of his malady. All history presents no sadder figure than that of the old man, blind and deprived of reason, wandering through the rooms of his palace, addressing imaginary parliaments, reviewing fancied troops, holding ghostly courts. King George was the last king of the United States. He was a madman for the last 30 years of his life. But he was also a good king, a leader, a parliamentarian, a scientist, whom, by the way, accurately predicted the transit of Venus in 1874 and 2004. He was described by many as a verbose man with a fantastic articulation that loved to read and learn. The stories and good doings of King George III may always be masked by his illness, but his contributions to the world are vast, and I still think his actions warrant a, some respect of high regard. However, one question still remains unanswered. What was this condition that King George suffered from? King George III's medical mystery has evaded scientists for hundreds of years. Many retrospective hypotheses have been formed without anyone coming to a fully conclusive answer. We start in 1865, and American psychiatrist Isaac Ray postulated that the king's illness was simply due to a sudden onset mania caused by the stress of losing the United States. A shallow, but fine enough hypothesis. This was the unexamined idea until all the way in 1945 when another American forensic psychiatrist, Manfred Guttmacher, speculated that the king suffered from manic depressive psychosis resulting from the loss of two of his children, Alfred and Octavius, which was later worsened by the death of his youngest daughter and in some recordings his most, his favorite daughter or favorite child, Amelia, in 1810 after a fatal bout of erysipel. You'll have to tell me how to say this one. Erysipelas. Erysipelas. Erysipelas, yeah. which is, as I'm sure you know. St. Elmo's fire. Yeah. A relatively common bacterial infection on the skin, which results in very painful bright red lesions on the surface. This was also a fine enough theory, but both speculate that the king was a mentally weak individual who couldn't handle the high levels of stress. Testimony of the king's servants and family have largely suggested otherwise. This led mother-son psychiatric team... Ida McAlpine and Richard Hunter back to the biggest clue still left untouched. Why was the king's urine blue? But first, a quick word from our sponsor. King refuses food, he will be restrained. He claims to have no appetite, he will be restrained. If he swears and indulges in meaningless discourse, 
he would be restrained. If he throws off his bedclothes, tears away his bandages, scratches his sores, and if he does not strive every day and always towards his own recovery, then he must be restrained. I am the king of England, no, sir! You are the patient! In 1866, they would publish a paper speculating that the king actually suffered from intermittent porphyria. Porphyria is a loose description of a group of liver conditions in which a high buildup of porphyrins can lead to negative effects on the skin, nervous system, liver, and renal functions. The most commonly reported symptom of porphyria is pain or numbness in the abdomen, back, and limbs. Other signs of acute porphyria included nausea, constipation, motor weakness, insomnia, and anxiety. Now let's examine porphyria on a more physiological level. Porphyria works in the body by impacting the synthesis of heme, an important precursor to hemoglobin, the necessary protein that binds oxygen in the bloodstream. Certain gene defects in the body can result in an enzymatic difference in some who are affected by porphyria that results in heme being produced with defects. You see, heme is made from a seven-step pathway, starting from something called aminolevulinic acid. Interestingly, there are seven different known genetic mutations that cause a blockage in this cascade, meaning that there are seven different types of porphyria. The farther the blockage occurs down this metabolic pathway, the more dangerous the porphyria gets. And this is because the porphyria toxicity doesn't occur from a lack of heme, but rather a buildup of the intermediates in this pathway. These precursors to heme are toxic when present in abundance and result in many of the side effects I just mentioned. Most importantly, these intermediates are excreted in the urine, resulting in discoloration that can present in many different colors. In 1969, three years after their breakthrough discovery, McAlpine and Hunter published a refined version of their paper, suggesting that King George may have suffered from variegate porphyria, or a blockage in between the sixth and seventh intermediates on the pathway, essentially being the most dangerous one possible. While no DNA analysis of King George's remains have ever been done to confirm this theory, evidence from the later family descendants of Queen Victoria have been noted. The DNA in some of his descendants, Princess Charlotte and Princess Feodora, have been obtained, and the gene associated with variegate porphyria has been found to be mutated in both of their DNA. While this is not definitive proof, it's certainly evidence towards the king's suffering from VP. Even later, Prince William of Gloucester, grandson of King George V, was a daredevil pilot who eventually died from a crash in 1972. Interestingly though, he was diagnosed by three separate physicians with variegate porphyria before his untimely death. And with that, we are back in the modern times. So the question of whether or not the king suffered from porphyria isn't really an if anymore. The question today is, why did his attacks continue for so much longer than most porphyria patients? This takes us back to arsenic. Basically what a team of forensic um, analysts did at the University of Kent back in 2016 was um, they weren't granted access to actually take some of his remains. However, they did present him with um, a small, like, like 15 strands of King George III's hair. And using hair, you can't really identify a lot of DNA stuff, but what you can do is you can take radioactive elemental examinations to see how specific elements were present. Three elements specifically were higher than of note for someone who would be living a healthy life. You won't like any of these either. Mercury, lead, and arsenic. Hmm. Mercury was found to be almost two and a half times the, the um, typical amount. Lead 
was over 13 times more, and arsenic was over 65 times more. Dang. Jeez. Interestingly, arsenic was never officially recorded as a medication given to King George. However, further depth in his other medications points to its use. King George's daily medications would tend to include antimony, which is element 51 on the periodic table. Antimony was used in this time as a purgative, or emetic, and was given to the king whenever his abdominal pain was very severe. <laughs> well, if two glasses of it can bring the king low, it could be the end of all government. Two glasses? Your majesty was only supposed to take three spoonfuls. When did three spoonfuls of anything do anybody any good? Measure the medicine to the man, Baker. How's the pulse? It's, it's, it's very, very fast. Good, good. Uh, your majesty would probably feel better after a warm bath. A warm bath has a most settling effect on the spirit. Yes, well, you have one, then. Your spirit's more agitated than mine. Come on. It's assumed that the extracted antimony given to the king was not 100% pure. Pulling stuff from the late 18th century, you can assume they're not doing it with 100% uh, certainty that they're going to get all antimony. And the typical extraction methods of antimony would have contained probably, speculatively, at least 10% arsenic. Wow. This coupled with a 2.5 milligram daily dose of arsenic would have probably been enough to reach the levels found in the king's hair. It's just interesting to, that... I, I guess I didn't allude to it as much as I should have, but it's really interesting that arsenic was never officially recorded as a medication given to King George, mm -hmm. despite it being 65 times the typical amount found in a human. That just suggests, I don't know, something a little bit fishy hmm. in the waters of Buckingham Palace. I don't know. You think he was poisoned? Maybe. Hmm. It, you really, it really does bring a interesting conundrum really a real enigma as far as what you said that with mercury it's around two times the normal dose as you said and then the fact that arsenic being 65 times it's almost as if stevie wonder could have saw this happening <laughs> <laughs> so it really is a real enigma of like why wasn't this recorded and potentially i'm thinking it may be due to the amount of um, the amount of backlash that might have been thrown at the doctor or scientist that may have been involved in it. And as Shane and kind of alludes, that they may think it's poison. I think personally, and this is my opinion, I think it might be the inverse of that. Arsenic was actually used pretty commonly during this time hmm. um, for those disease, for a lot of the disease states associated with porphyria. And if they had just assumed that it was mania at the time, sure, they would have been like, okay, let's use something that, that, that has been, you know, proven by homeopathy to be used in the past. And I say proven with very strong quotations. But no, I think if anything, they would have used arsenic. The fact that it's not on their official medication list suggests something else. And I don't even fully know what I'm alluding to. But it's just interesting that, I mean, they charted everything that the king was on and everything that King George ever did has been charted at some point. And the fact that they never put arsenic on there, despite it being a fairly common treatment at the time, may suggest something else. Do you think that it, because it was used as a homeopathic remedy, that they just neglected to put it on there in the same way that a typical patient today wouldn't mention any herbal medications when they are talking to their doctor? I mean, maybe. I, I don't think so. 
because I don't think they d differentiated the difference between homeopathy, herbal medications, prescription medications, that kind of thing. It was just medicine. You know, they used antimony, which is strictly an element as well for as a purgative. I mean, there's plenty of things now for, for if you needed emesis. But no, I think I, I I don't think necessarily that would be the case. I think more so that I don't know. I don't even know. Yeah. It's really interesting that you point out how uh, what was the disease called again? Porphyria. Porphyria may actually cause the discoloration of urine, mm -hmm. and because. I could have sworn that it may have been due to some form of bacterial infection, such as um, Pseudomonas. That's actually a bacteria that can, has been known to cause urine discoloration to colors like yellow, green, even blue. Right. So it's really in interesting that a disease like this could also lead to urine discoloration. Mm -hmm. And there's some other medications out there that will affect the color of your urine, particularly rifampin. Rifampin as well. Make your urine red. And it was interesting because I was watching a video on this, by the way, of the person that did the DNA analysis uh, at the University of Kent. And um, he said urine. They said a bunch of different things because obviously they're British. But he said urine, which really frustrated me for the entirety <laughs> of the presentation. They don't say urine. They say urine. What do you think about the overall um, thought that King George III was just manic? I think it really could be a very subjective way of looking at it. I mean, plausibility, yes, having the weight of a nation on your shoulders as well as the weight of being a father to 15 kids. I mean, <laughs> I've heard of families having five to six children, and even my sister-in-law is a the 11th of 13 children. And But as far as causing media, I wouldn't think that it would cause mania for him. I think it really could have been another reasoning. Mm -hmm. I just want to point out one more thing, too, because we were talking about whether or not his disease state was hereditary. I mean, it being found in all of, all of his descendants, is, that's got to be the biggest marker that you could find. Particularly the guy, the Prince William, who died in the plane crash. He was like a, I didn't make that up, he was like a, like a well-known daredevil person, like Evil Knievel of Flight or something like that in England until he crashed when he was at 30. But anyways, yeah, I mean, it's, it's very genetically driven. So, I mean, yeah, I think that's, I think that's an interesting idea. Mm. Most people, though, with porphyria don't have uh, the, the extended amount. It affected him pretty much for the rest of his life, specifically in a time where England needed a king. Yeah. And in the late 1790s, right after the Revolutionary War had ended, and King George wasn't being his typical self, they went through what is known as, uh, in England as the Regency Crisis, where who was going to rule now that King George was incapacitated. It was really one of the first quote-unquote modern-day parliamentary ways to decide who would be in charge if something were to happen. Like, you know, we have that in the United States now where if the president is in any way incapacitated, the vice president takes over. But you don't really have that for a king. You just pass it on to the next descendant. And at the time, King George IV, he was like part of the political opposition. And that's a whole different story. But I just found that interesting, too, that that would be worth a Google or two um, if you're interested in, in English history. And what brings you to Windsor, sir? I had heard your majesty was indisposed, but I see it thus. Indisposed? Is there anywhere I can assist? Want to hump the old bird out of the nest, is that it? Oh, sir, there may be responsibilities that I could share. Want to get your fat hands on government, is that it? Whoa! 
I'm old and infirm. I'll not trouble you long. I wish you the best of health, Father. Wish me, wish me. You wish me death, you plump little... cuckoo. Hush, <laughs> Father, hush. But in summary, King George III was a very interesting man who led a unique and rather sad life. Hopefully, there can be some solace taken from his story and a lesson to please, and always, medicate responsibly. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough.